0: Welcome to the Forecast, helping you navigate the economic and investing landscape with information from Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And
1: now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. GDP is negative. The Fed has raised 75 basis points, two and a quarter percent, on Fed funds. Ten-year Treasury doesn't care at 275. A lot of the historians would tell you we're in recession, but everybody else says we're not. Farr has a theory about this. Farr says that it's really to the government's advantage, clearly for those who want to be reelected to say we're not in recession because it is the economy stupid. But it also gives cover to Jay Powell and the Fed to continue to fight inflation a little bit harder if we don't have to call it a recession. Imagine the Federal Reserve's position if unemployment rises, and we're beginning to hear from a number of corporations that they either are either going to slow hiring or have layoffs, and if if you see unemployment rising in a declared recession and they're going to continue to raise rates, all because inflation hasn't come down, it's much easier for the Fed, I think, to operate and say that they're going to continue to fight inflation, continue to raise rates if we don't have to call this thing a recession yet. Jared Bernstein from the White House says, we're just playing semantics. Well, that's right. It sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. Uh, I guess if it walks like a duck and waddles like a duck and quacks like a duck, it still might be something else, Mr. Bernstein. We'll find out. My friend Jim Leventhal from Sarity Partners, a CNBC contributor, is a Farcast fan favorite, and he's going to explain all of this to us and what you should do with your money. Welcome back, Jim.
2: Michael, so good to be with you. Thank you, as always. I enjoy these. I look forward to these meetings with you.
1: Uh, and do you know, Jim, that Dan Mahaffey is going to come up and talk to us about politics and what happened in Washington uh, overnight. Uh, uh, Ooh, a little
2: subterfuge, a little subterfuge overnight. Yes, we had a
1: closed. We had closed door meetings and an agreement from Schumer and Mansion and the Build Back Better revised version at 740 billions back on the table. And then coming up, you know the coolest part that's gonna happen today, other than getting to talk to you is we've got Shannon Sakosha coming up uh, in our third segment. So what you don't cover and what I stumble over, she's gonna clarify for us. This is a great day for Farcast listeners, Jim, really is. Tell us what you think.
2: I am the opening act to the headliner, which is Shannon Sakosha. Uh, but I'm honored to be on. Um, I mentioned just a second ago, subterfuge, and obviously politics is not where I live, but it does seem like as soon as the CHIPS Act was approved in the Senate, this little baby comes out, right? Um, <laughs> I think somebody somebody got a fast one thrown by him, and it might be Mitch McConnell.
1: It might be Mitch McConnell, but it sure looks like uh, Mahaffey says 90% chance this thing passes through if they have to wheel in everybody with the uh, with COVID, every Democrat in a in a space suit to get them in there to vote, he says they're gonna do it. Uh, Greg Valliere says better than 50% chance this thing passes. So uh, it's, it's,
2: just, be... just to just to cut to the investment chase, to me, yes, it's sir. not a big enough number. I know 740 billion, right? It's not a big enough number to matter. It's not something that on the margins, either on the spending or the revenue side or the deficit reduction side really matters. Now, what will be interesting is do any amendments get tacked on that you know maybe put income sur taxes on or change the trust and estate rules um but to the investor waking up on Thursday morning that's not the news that's really uh, you know on my mind
1: what's the news on your mind jim
2: well so here's the interesting thing we came into this week with so much to look forward to, right? Earnings, the Fed meeting, and then economic data, and the big one today being the GDP number. So we got it, right? And it's negative. So two quarters of negative uh, GDP growth, and we'll have, the, we'll have the wrangling over whether that's a recession or not. But when the number came out, and I was really looking forward to it, came out, and I was, I, my immediate reaction to myself was, so what? So what? Who cares? Oh, huh. And I don't okay. care. I don't care. And the reason I don't care is because of where I live in the microscopic world of uh, company-specific analytics, um, earnings are still growing. Now, I could throw out there, hey, you know, the unemployment rate is 3.6%. And in the first half of this year, we've created a heck of a lot of jobs. But ultimately, what matters to investors in the stock market is that earnings are still growing. And yes, earnings estimates have been coming down, but not precipitously. We still are looking at good earnings growth this year and next year. And there's nothing that I've seen in the earnings reports and so far that would okay. tell me that earnings are earnings growth is going to go negative. I just so, don't us so let's,
1: let, let's go there for a second, Jim. Uh, earnings growth doesn't have to go negative necessarily, but will earnings growth slow? And will that 10% or 11% S&P 500 estimate for 2022 hold up? Or do you expect more of a 6% number for earnings growth this year? And if you get a 6% uh, number, something less than 10 or 11%, what does that do to stock valuations and PE multiples? And does that come down? Or do you think we hit those higher numbers?
2: I hate to give you a nuanced answer, but I have to. Oh, because God. I, really? That I I was a very, question, a very specific question, Leibenthal. I don't channel your inner Scott Wapner here, Michael. Just <laughs> bear with me, okay? Uh, I thought I, that was my wife's just... <laughs> No, here's why I'm giving you the nuanced answer. Let's first off, sure, you could still hit that 10% growth in 2023. Right now, it's trending down, it's trending down more towards 7%. But here's why I'm giving you a nuanced answer the growth rate in the first quarter of 2023 is likely to be dramatically different than the growth rate in the fourth quarter of 2020. Yes. And a year, 2023, is a long time to look forward to. I'm not I'm not trying to dodge your answer. What I'm trying to say is that whether it's 6, 7 or 10%, it's positive. And I know there are Absolutely. strategists out there who are calling for like $200 a share next year on the S&P 500. That would be disastrous. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm saying it would be disastrous. And the point that I'm really trying to get to here, excuse me being long-winded, is at the end of this year, the Fed should be done with its heavy lifting. Inflation should, I know how foolish this sounds, should be broken, should be coming down. The midterm elections will be over. And you've got all that supply chain onshoring that I've been talking about and infrastructure spending really taking hold. So maybe the first quarter of 2023 sees that lagged effect from all the Fed hikes. But as you go through 2023, I think what we're going to see is that the period we're in right now, second half of 2022 into early 2023, is a growth slowdown in an otherwise expanding economy? That's my thesis. I can't prove it right now because I can't prove what the future will hold. But that's my thesis.
1: Okay. So uh, you know, on the whether we actually are in recession or we're not in recession, what we know is most people fear recession because at least in the markets it means an average of a thirty percent pullback in stock prices. We got down twenty four percent top to bottom. Do we go retest those lows somewhere in here? Uh, I'm thinking, yes, we probably do for reasons we can't quite imagine yet, But yes, we probably do because markets tend to test those lows uh, over time. do you Do you believe in those old trends that I continue to follow? I,
2: let me answer it this way. I don't think we go back down to the lows. Now, everybody who's listening to this is going to say, yeah, Labenthal, you've been saying that all year and you've been wrong. So I admit it. Right. I mean, there's the facts are what they are, but well, I know you're think, not
1: wrong when you're saying we don't go back down to the lows. We'll see.
2: Yeah. But the reason that I think this is because, again, whether it's a recession or a growth slowdown or whatever, what I see here is a pretty strong labor market, a very strong banking system. Good demand from the sort of discretionary aspects of, say, air travel, or you know car demand. Um, I don't see those mass layoffs. I don't see that despair that usually and financial markets break down that you usually see in a recession. It's one of the reasons that I think we're in a growth slowdown. So when I think about the twenty four percent decline that you spoke about, I think it was overdone. That is my belief. And so that is why, if this is a growth slowdown, we shouldn't have gone down that far. And that's why I don't think we have to retest it. Now, there are some tells, in my opinion, this week. I think the response to Google and Microsoft's earnings, particularly Google's on uh, Wednesday evening, or maybe it was Tuesday evening, excuse me, um, they missed on the top and bottom line and the stock rallied. It was an indication to me, at least, of how much negativity is priced in. Um, which is to say too much. And then there's yesterday with the Fed and uh, 75 basis points and this rather wild, I think, overreaction to the upside, which I'm, I think many of us are kind of scratching our, our heads saying, where did that really come from? Yeah. The most logical explanation I can give to yesterday's rally is that there was just too much negativity priced in. That's the basis for why I just don't think we go down to those rather dramatic lows of last
0: month.
1: Let's 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 talk about this Fed tightening cycle for a second, Jim, and how long it could last. Because when you listened to Powell yesterday, people interpreted some of it, of his, of what he said as dovish. Yeah. I'm not sure if he intended it to be dovish. He talked about some point in the future when they would begin to slow their rate of tightening, their pace of tightening. Um, uh, which 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 is which is good to hear him say that at some point in the future that's going to happen. But okay, so we're in this tightening cycle. How long does the Fed continue to tighten? And historically, this is an important question. Will they still be tightening? Will we see a rate increase in December? Well, so we have got September coming up, and then two more meetings after
2: that. Um, you know, right now the Fed funds rate is in the range of two and a quarter to. Uh, um, uh, two and a uh, half, excuse me. I think you could see a benign trajectory where they raise 50 basis points in September, 25 in each of the following two meetings, including December. And then, and then they might be done at three and a quarter, three and a half percent. The problem with what I just said is, of course, you've got Bill Dudley and others saying they need to go a hell of a lot more than that. And ultimately, who's right is going to come down to what happens with inflation. Now, inflation has surprised to the upside For a very long time. In fact, I can't recall a series of economic statistics befuddling the analyst estimates as long as the current run of of hot CPI uh, statistics. I have to think that when you look at commodity prices, whether it's gasoline, wheat, copper, lumber, and the trajectory they've been on to the downside the last several weeks, uh, as well as you know, some growing uh, wage pressures to the downside, meaning there are some uh, uh, increases in jobless claims. I have to think that inflation is going to come down and that the Fed will be done by the end of the year. That's my belief.
1: Okay, uh, that's important. And I see Shannon has joined us and she's nodding her head.
3: You agree, Shannon, that the Fed will be done by the end of the year? I do. I, I think they will be done. I think that, you know, if we just look at the decline in commodity prices and the way that that's going to transmit from PPI to CPI, um, the demand destruction that we're seeing already, um, I'm hoping, you know, frankly, that that's a demand delay versus, a you know, permanently destructed demand. And I think that is a possibility, but I think the Fed will be done by the end of this year. And, and I actually think that um, three and a quarter is is sort of the top end of that I, I I think that they are going to be very thoughtful about having to do more than is necessary to set themselves up so that they can cut rates again
1: well no and I want to talk about that in just one second but Uh, when they're going to cut rates again and make sure I remember to cover that in a second before I make my next point. See, what happens, ladies and gentlemen, when you're my age is you make the next point and you have no idea what the hell you thought you were going to say two minutes (laughs) ago. So uh, I've told you all, I could still forget it, by the way. And so now at least everybody can remind me. Uh, You typically see markets turn two thirds through a tightening cycle. So if we started in March and it goes to uh, through December and that's really it, then somewhere September end of September October you should see stocks begin to turn. Could, so I'm thinking there's there's room for lower stuff here even if we test those lows, Jim. Uh, but but that somewhere that would take us two thirds through in September October you could see it. Then okay, then they finish that cycle. Then you typically have a couple of months to figure out that where they overstepped, where the Fed overdid it. Historically, the Fed overdoes it, and you figure out where they overdid it. And then everybody wants to talk about when they're gonna start easing again. When will the Fed change policy? When will they stop the quantitative tightening, Jim Labenthal? Are we seeing the Fed coming back easing in June, do you think, of 2023? So let me be provocative. What if they don't need to cut? I thought I was being provocative. You're going to be provocative, too.
2: Well, I'm going to try. I'm not sure I can measure up to your, you know, the heights of provocation that that you have developed over the years. Um, Seriously, I'm thinking about this. What if like what's wrong with three and a quarter, three and a half percent? I mean, I go I'm not that young anymore. I go back to the 90s. Right. I mean. Think about where we were, not even the 90s. Go back to 2006, 2007, when Bernanke was taking it up like, step by step every meeting. We got up to 6% on the Fed funds rate. I, now,
1: here's where I'm There's going. There's nothing with wrong with that rate. It's only if the Fed does overstep and we end up in some sort of prolonged slowdown and recession uh, here's, that, here's that what they're going to have to respond to. So, you really think they're not going to put us into risk, whatever we call this? You're, you're right then, on the money. You're right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we, this thingamajig.
1: Um,
2: thingamajig right, that we're market. in. Yes, it's a
1: technical term, folks.
2: Here's here's what I'm trying to say. I'm listening to the company reports. Shannon's listening to the company reports. Yes, there are some doozies out there, right? Walmart, <laughs> that's no fun. ATT, yay yeah, Okay, but but listen to Jamie Diamond at JP Morgan and Brian Moynihan at Bank of America. They're seeing loan growth and they're seeing the, the consumer hang in there they're seeing demand not ebbing at all. Uh, car demand, uh, it, it, you know, there's bit, what I'm trying to say here is there are a lot of CEOs in this earnings season who are coming out and saying one form or the other saying, yeah, we hear all of the concerns about a recession. We're just not seeing it in our business. And I'm not saying that at and doesn't matter. And I'm not saying that Walmart doesn't matter. What I'm saying is it's not a slam dunk that we're going into a recession, thingamajig, whatever you wanna call it.
1: Whatever the thingamajig is. All right, so Jim, we're out of time. Really quickly, if you would, tell Fred and Ethel what they should be thinking about with this thingamajig that may or may not be a recession, the Fed that's raising rates, the higher prices that they're seeing, the higher shelter costs that they're seeing, the average car payment now is over $700 a month. Uh, the cost to the consumer and their discretionary dollars, costs are high, discretionary dollars are almost non-existent. What do they do between now and the end of the year?
2: Yeah, what do I they do listen, for their consumer too, Fred and uh, Ethel. And I'm, I'm a consumer too, Fred and Ethel, and I, I feel the pain. We all feel it, right? Um, you know, I also note that gas prices are coming down. I also note uh, that that trickles through the economy, whether it's farmers you know, having to pay less in fuel costs and that translates through to food costs. Again, I mentioned where commodities futures are, but ultimately, ultimately inflation will come down to a more reasonable level one way or the other. And what you should be doing as an investor is staying invested. I'm not saying that next week or next month we're off to the races, I can't say that. But I can say that over the next one, three, five and 10 years, We're likely to have meaningful returns in the stock market. Stay invested. And above all else, stay in quality companies. There's no need to go dumpster diving into high price to sales, no earnings companies. You know, I love small caps, but you don't need to right now when you've got the top 100 companies in the universe selling at extreme discounts. Buy high quality companies and stick with them for the long term.
1: Jim Labenthal is a partner at Sarity Partners, a CNBC contributor, regular on the halftime report. As we say on the Farcast, listen to Labenthal, also one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet anywhere, not only just Wall Street, where there are fewer of them than other places. But, uh, Jim, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Always my pleasure. I'm going to listen to you and Shannon. And above all else, follow FAR.
1: There you go. Uh, Coming up, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And then, folks, remember, Shannon Sakosha coming up here on The Farcast. Please stay with us.
0: We're glad you could join us this week on The Farcast.
1: Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Of course, now joining us, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on The Farcast, where we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Dan Mahaffey, Washington made news overnight, more news than normal, with a secret deal, a secret deal in Washington. How does that happen? And what am I talking about? Tell us,
4: Dan. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, it's been an exciting 24 hours, and I will say what we have seen with Manchin and Schumer secretly behind the scenes, you know, we said last week the big negotiations had, had stopped, the inflation print had uh, really scared away the idea of any more big planning, uh, big packages were were dead on arrival in Manchin's office. Uh, he, this whole time, had been talking with Schumer. They were continuing to move on ideas. Uh, the... Inflation numbers, as Manchin would say now, uh, did not so much as scare him as said, let's just make sure this package is scrubbed of anything inflationary. And that's what they believe they've done with this package. They're, they're going to go along uh, a $740 billion reconciliation deal that Democrats can move with their 50-vote majority in the Senate. So the two big questions outstanding. One... Does Kirsten Cinema go along with this package? There are tax increases in it. Uh, there's going to be a 15% minimum corporate tax for any company with a book value of $15 billion or higher. Book and value. There's...
1: How do they, book value? Is that what they said? Is book value? They said or... book value. Book value is different. I wonder if that's uh, one of those things that uh, Congress just gets wrong and uses the wrong term book value is a much lower value than a market cap, uh, market capitalization. Book value is much, much lower. Uh, Go ahead. Well, and that's
4: that's the term that Manchin used speaking to reporters, that the deal would be on book value. Uh, The other thing is that there would be closing the carried interest loophole because in Manchin's words, Wall Street has been on a hell of a ride for a long time.
1: I should stop and point out too, that uh, book value is not always lower. Sometimes uh, stocks will trade at book value, Um, but book value is when you really try to uh, figure out the real intrinsic value of a company. When you add up uh, uh, all of the assets, including the typewriters and real estate, and you divide by the number of shares, if you had to have really hard value for a company, you get down to book value. And if you want even a tighter number, you get to something called tangible book value, which is something we always look at when it comes to the banks. Banks uh, trade more uh, in relation to book value or tangible book than anybody else. Dan, your uh, last point was on this minimum corporate tax. And say that again.
4: Oh, that they would close the carried interest loophole. Carried uh, interest loophole. Yes. Yes, that would be closed.
1: What is the carried interest loophole? Or do you
4: want me to do that? that would be better if you did that
1: all right so carried interest loophole uh typically applies to hedge fund managers and private equity and what they have is is a they call it a carried interest in a company uh that they see appreciate on which they get paid and when they get paid on this carried interest because it's an interest in the equity appreciation of some of these underlying investments. They don't pay any tax on it. They don't have to pay tax on the carried interest as income. It's it's more like a capital gain. Well, the whole structure of their business is to benefit from this carried interest using other people's money. So they get the investor's money and then they take this interest. So when you hear two and 20 as a hedge fund or a private equity deal, they take a 2% fee and they do pay income taxes on that but that 20% of the profits that they get they don't pay income taxes on that and uh, because it is the entire nature of their business it is seen as fair that they that mm-hmm. they should so they miss a whole lot of taxes and then a lot of them have moved to Puerto Rico where they don't pay any taxes at all
4: i don't you have that michael people- you you have that i would also say um you know that that's a question of just how much you raise a good point there one just how much will this raise given you know that they are changing locations and that that 2 and 20 model is changing for a lot of these uh, setups. So how this, you know, whether this is the uh, going to raise the money as they think it will in terms of paying for some of these other aspects, which will be, of course, you know it's some of these climate provisions, energy, Although clearly to get Manchin on board, there's nothing really restricting fossil fuel development in the near future. Uh, So they get a lot of their priorities. I think progressives ultimately go along. Uh, I think as we've talked about, those tax windows are narrow enough that I think Kirsten Sinema stays on board. So those boxes are checked. Uh, The big question becomes the calendar, getting this done in time. And they've got to keep all 50 senators COVID-free to get this vote done. How and much time uh, do
1: they have? I mean, you know, well, of course, they have all the time they want, but if we if we use the in, in election date as sort of a deadline to get this done, and given all of the recesses they have scheduled between now and the election, wh- how many days do they
4: have actually- Well, given a reconciliation package, time? you really want to get it done before the end of the fiscal year. So that's the September into October window. Uh, and then, you know, ideally they want to get this done uh, politically, they want to get this done before the August recess so they can start campaigning on the things they've passed. They don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about this CHIPS Act that they also passed and some of those things there. We shouldn't forget that that being passed meant that there was no longer the hostage uh, in the Senate that Republicans had to block this reconciliation package as well. Uh, so this is all uh you know unfolded but we we still have just a, a, the weeks literally uh next week they will be in session they want to leave by the the fourth or fifth to get on the campaign trail but but stay tuned they can always uh make sure the recess shorter
1: so uh, I I saw one number that was 369 billion you mentioned a 700 and some odd billion dollar number uh mm-hmm. I, I I thought that the I guess, the uh, uh, environmental price tag, $369 billion. But But what's the total uh,
4: for this? $740 billion is the top line that the How much? new 700 and, $740 billion.
1: 700, so three quarters of a trillion dollars in additional spending that Manchin agreed to, but we still have to hear from Cinema. So what are your odds, Dan, that this thing actually gets done and will get to get through the uh, house as well. I would put
4: this at a 90 95 percent this no is no kidding the, this is the Real. heart of the Democratic agenda the they are not going to have an opportunity like this. They know they have to do something uh, of this nature before they go to the campaign trail. They have to have some other things to point to just besides the the culture war issues. Um, I think that, you know, very interestingly, they're calling this the I think something along the lines of the Inflation Control Act um, and and arguing that some of these energy and supply side developments in there would be deflationary. Uh, that's certainly not going to be the case by the election, though, um, but it is rhetorical, but it is something to campaign on. They want to move it through. That biggest question mark, I still say, is timing and keeping the senators healthy. Um, keeping but the look, senators you know, healthy.
1: so if you're if, if you're you a Democratic, to- if you're a Democratic senator, you come down with COVID, they're going to put you in a spacesuit and wheel you onto the floor so you can vote. Something, correct?
4: something probably like that. I mm-hmm. think I think you would see that or they're just going to keep all the senators in the keep them sequestered in the chamber until for five days. Who knows? Let but them they, all they get want,
1: let them all get COVID if they can get this thing passed. I mean, you know, are you uh, dedicated well, to the party that, or yeah, not? Yeah,
4: between that between that and chips, uh that chips has gone through seven hundred and forty, two eighty. We're looking at more than a trillion going out the door this week.
1: Another tri- a trillion dollars going out the door this 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 week. And we're 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 still worried about fighting inflation. Some of these dots, ladies and gentlemen, just don't connect for me. I understand. Uh, what they're trying to do. And I understand that there are some good aspects and some benefits here, but when uh, when it kind of waddles and oinks, it sure looks like pork to me, particularly this close to an election. And I'm very, very suspicious as a lifelong Washingtonian. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, Dan, what else are you seeing in Washington that we should be paying attention to this week? The Federal Reserve talked yesterday, of course,
4: uh, what what are you seeing there? Mm-hmm. Well, look, I think we still see the question of whether the Fed will pump the brakes too hard, what that does for political pressure on the Fed. We're already hearing Elizabeth Warren and others saying, uh, among the progressive side, saying the Fed is moving too fast. Uh, separate from the the rate hike news, I think it's interesting to note Uh, Senator Portman of Ohio and Chairman Powell have had a back and forth over a report just released by a Senate committee talking about how the Chinese have been trying to infiltrate the Fed and get secret data, and including an incident in 2019 where a Fed economist visiting Shanghai was detained four times by Chinese police demanding that he hand over confidential Fed data.
1: Confidential Fed data that that, that the Chinese and others want. Uh it, it really is, I guess, escalating the tensions with China. They seem to be escalating. Will Nancy Pelosi actually go
4: to Taiwan? Oh, that's a that's a good question. One, I think it it the worst part about this has been you would have hoped that Pelosi and the administration would have talked about this beforehand and you avoid this situation now where the administration is trying to say, oh no, she shouldn't go. Uh, You know, it makes us look kind of feckless, even though we we do understand they are two separate branches of government. Is it your sense that there was no discussion between? I I get that sense. The way the you know, the way the military is coming out and talking about this, the way some of the administration officials appeared to be flat footed in their response, because I don't get the administration's response as well. No government should be saying to uh, the U.S. Speaker of the House where she can and can't go if invited uh, by a, another local government. Okay. Um, but, then you know, the thing is, the way, you've, the way you've got to do this is, I think, you know, fly her in on a private plane a day early under the dark of night, transponder off, get the photo op, get her out. Um, but, you know, you it's not been a well-managed situation. It's not been a well-managed situation at
1: all. And it's increasing those tensions with China, who are threatening, of course, to have fighter jets buzz her plane and everything else. Uh, Put your politics aside, ladies and gentlemen, whether you like Nancy Pelosi or not doesn't matter here. We're talking about the Speaker of the House of the United States, the third in line for succession of the presidency, who wants to travel to a foreign country. And that foreign country is threatening, threatening the Speaker if she uh, happens to who happens to be Nancy Pelosi here so you you know it's it's uh you have to keep these things in mind that this is the Speaker of the House of the United States of America and you don't threaten that person and that's what's going on that's uh that's really when you hear these sorts of threats and tensions think about the oil in the gears of commerce global mm-hmm. commerce there are problems already uh, around the world economically and we haven't even gotten Dan, we have to talk next week about this. Uh, mortgage boycotting that's going on in China. This mm-hmm. is a big deal. It's been happening in over 80 or yeah. 90 cities. And we're talking billions and billions of dollars uh, of mortgages that aren't getting paid in China. These people have some difficult uh, economic times to face. Mm-hmm. And Xi Jinping is still uh, probably going to Keep his position, but he's still got a little bit of a
4: fight coming up in, in what, November, October, November? He does. Well, I don't think there's much of a fight. He's got everything well sewed up. But next week, we need to talk about the the Chinese domestic economy. Let's also throw what they're doing in the South China Sea on the agenda and the tensions with Taiwan, Vietnam, the Philippines, etc.
1: We're gonna do that next week. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, Senior Political Analyst on The Farcast. Thank you so much, Dan. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. Please stay with us.
0: Michael Farr and The Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to The Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on The Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr.
1: Welcome back. Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at SVB Private. She's responsible for setting the overall investment strategy for the firm, BA in economics and history from Brandeis University. Labenthal said that she was really smart, and Labenthal's right. Also a CFA, a certified investment management analyst. One of the smartest people you're going to listen to in the media or anywhere else. She's thoughtful, Uh, she's provocative in her thinking. She does not follow the crowd, folks, which is why it's such a treat to have her on. And she's just nice as hell. Welcome, Shannon, we're so glad you're here.
3: Oh, thanks so much for having me back. I'm very excited about this. We're really we're really glad. So, Shannon, let's start,
1: we, we've seen, uh, we were talking about GDP numbers with, with Labenthal and we were talking, and Mahaffey, of course, we were talking about uh, the Fed yesterday. I, I was looking at another number this morning, um, in 2022, the S&P has had more uh, days of uh, volatility, more than 1% moves, 49% of the trading days this day this year versus 22% last year, 1% moves in the S&P, 49% this year. And for the NASDAQ, 69% of the trading days this year and the NASDAQ have had more than a 1% move versus 31% last year, both of those numbers up more than 100%. Uh, It's incredible. If you add all of the data and the volatility, what does it mean to investors?
3: Well, frankly, I mean, you shouldn't necessarily be surprised about that. And I think as we were coming into this year, we all talked about this pickup or tick up in volatility. Um, We're entering into you know, out of what I would call the post-pandemic phase to this new arena, this new phase, this new paradigm for the U.S. economy and for the global economy at large. And this massive reset, which I think... Investors were somewhat naive maybe in 2021 in thinking that we were anchoring ourselves to 2019 as where we were going back to. Um, And I think that, you know, a lot of the comments on the street right now, whether you're talking about the working environment, whether you're talking about prices, where you're talking about margin expectations at both the macro and the micro level, This is a new world, and it's not to say that we cannot use precedent in terms of central bank policy or in terms of what happened the last time inflation was this high. Um, But I do think that for investors relying on historical data, whether it's valuation data or whether it's what happened the last time the Fed raised rates, I think it's difficult. And I think what they're challenged with, um, and, and you and Jim were talking about this, this, the surprises in the data, the the lack of um, con- the consensus and then the numbers being so widely divergent from consensus, it's because we're entering into a new phase. And so this volatility, I think, is investors not only trying to necessarily mitigate the risk in their portfolio against a new outlook, but also a- attempting to find opportunities. And you know, this oscillation and you see it in the market every day oscillating between what used to work or what's expected to work and maybe what's new and could be on the horizon that's the most interesting dynamic in the market today but it is creating this amped up level of volatility
1: yeah and you know I as I listen to you I I, I'm, I think it's an absolutely brilliant analysis that we are in a massive reset and there is no game plan. I got a call last night from uh, our CEO at Hightower, and he's a great friend. But he was asking me, he said, Look, I'm thinking about my plans and the company's plans for the balance of the year and for 2023. And uh, I really want you to give me your best advice about where we're going and how this plays out and where we see markets. Because a company like Hightower, of course, uh, as with your company and business, and Jim Labenthal's, and many of ours, uh, very, very much depends on where the market is, um, and revenues, of course, based on assets and other things. And one, one of the things that I said was, you know, we, I, there is not a historical chart to which I can point that covers any period that closely resembles this. I keep thinking of the 1970s. I don't think of the. 19, early 1990s. I don't think of 08 and 09. Uh, I don't think of any of those things. It feels a little 70-ish because you did have that extended monetary easing and stimulus for so long uh, after Nixon got to Arthur Burns. And it was a, uh, a, a problem that Volcker had to correct, of course. But it seems to me that this Fed is well ahead of Volcker, and none of those situations were ever exacerbated by a COVID pandemic or a war in Ukraine and the supply chain issues. So how do you make sense of it? And I think that perhaps being a bit unfettered by these historical points, data points, allows us to sort of say this is a big reset. So you, you heard what Jim was saying about how he thought the year would play out. You sort of agree that the Fed stops in December, What do you think that means for the next, how do we get to an economic expansion phase again with a consumer, if if we're a consumer-driven economy, two-thirds consumer-driven, and the consumer is squeezed, as my mother-in-law would say, tighter than Dick's hat band. (laughs) Never been sure sure what she means by that, but it does sound tight, doesn't it? So tighter than Dick's hat band. Uh, uh, How do you get to that point where the consumer has discretionary dollars to spend again?
3: Well, that's the biggest challenge right now. And so we're, I mean, I think there was this expectation. If you go back to late 2020 and early 2021, there was this enthusiasm that even if we did see accelerating inflation, we were seeing higher wages. But we really, you know, obviously we were seeing only nominally higher wages, not higher real wages. And we've actually started to see wage growth slow. So, I do think that we need to get to the point where we understand that just like we saw in the decade following the, the great financial crisis, that there are going to be some deflationary impacts in the economy that are going to have to be realized. And so I go back to thinking about, um, and and Jim talks about this all the time, and he and I are, are completely on the same page in terms of reshoring or, you know, of of the U.S. Or does that scare you? It should
1: scare you a little bit that when you realize, you know. I, what really scares me is when I agree with Weiss. And I say that on the air. I think, you know, it's very strange and this really bothers me. I mean, I, it actually upsets me uh, that I find myself agreeing with Weiss. But, you know, you have to be a little worried. Labenthal's listening, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, so I'm teasing him here. But uh, you, you have to worry a little, Shannon, to agree with Jimmy.
3: Yeah, no, but I mean, I think you're, the question the question is really... How do consumers find that confidence, that enthusiasm, that expectation that we will see improvement in terms of prices for the goods that they're purchasing or resetting their expectations for what that looks like? So I think, again, I think it's this anchoring to gas at a certain price or, you know, Ground beef at a certain price or grain at a certain price, um, that needs to start. You you see need to see that unfold. And fortunately, we're seeing some of those prices come down. So I think we'll end up anchoring to a slightly higher rate. But that's why I talked, you know, in in my last couple of notes that I've they put out to our clients about this idea of demand delay rather than demand destruction, because I think it is taking what you have from a wage perspective, knowing that it, everything that you're paying for is going to be slightly higher, and then figuring out a way to reset those expectations so that you can consume. I, the, 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 the U.S. consumer is not gonna stop spending from a discretionary perspective, but right now they're hunkering down to try to figure out what that number looks like in the middle of next year. But that reshoring, that what drives the U.S. economy in this next phase, you remember we talked about this with the energy renaissance. Yes. The energy renaissance is coming back. It's coming back, you know, and, and yes. but there's more to it now than just energy. US is
1: exporting a lot of oil right now. I mean, the oil export numbers were 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 way up. West Texas Intermediate is uh is very popular now and very attractive compared <laughs> to Brent crude. So uh, you know, we we are seeing that. And for for all that we're trying to get Saudi Arabia to pump. Uh, we're exporting. I mean, we've 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 got an energy renaissance here. So uh, Shannon, I've watched this cycle over the past couple of years, where uh, sometimes the stocks, these high quality stocks that many of us have been talking about, uh, what, whether it's what Jim was just saying, whether it's Stephanie Link talking about the upgrade to quality, and a number of us saying, not the time to be venturing into the thin branches of risk. So right. so. We, we have these companies, but then markets turn and you take a look at what's really driving performance and they're the riskier stocks. They're the, they are those things in the thin branches. They might be the 35 times earnings tech stock that um, is, is all popular and you can't really bring yourself to buy and then you wait a quarter and that's what's gone up even more and you're lagging in performance because you didn't take the extra, on the extra risk what do you do to transition or think prospectively about how to position a portfolio for the for when the defensive posture doesn't work anymore
3: well so i think you make a great point so i think that there And you're seeing this just, even if you just look at factor performance, right? You're seeing outperformance of the quality factor. You're seeing finally outperformance of the dividend factor, which has been woefully underperforming, um, especially during 2020, where it should have been, you know, a flight to safety to dividend stocks, woefully underperformed during that period. And I think why you're, I think how you differentiate between, Offense and defense or cyclicals versus defensives is that I think there it goes back to your question on how does the US grow. And so when I think about I'm looking at quality companies that can grow a dividend, but more importantly, have some innovative approach to their market or are looking at investing from a, a CapEx perspective in making their business better, longer term. So not just on the productivity side, but really taking a step back and saying, okay, for the most part, U.S. large cap companies didn't do anything with the 10 years that they had low rates, except buy back their stock, right? They didn't take advantage of that to reinvest in their businesses. They wrote it out. They wanted to see their stock prices rise. I think now what they're saying is, okay, higher prices are here to stay, so I need to reinvest in my business to create a secular tailwind for my company, not necessarily contingent on global growth being 4%, 5 that 6%. So that, those are the companies I'm looking at. So some of those may be Steady Eddies that we've owned for 10 or 20 years. Um, some may be newer entrants into our universe, but the common denominator for me is, how are they going to be able to protect margin? And the way they do that is through productivity and reinvestment in their business.
1: Productivity growth is is gonna be key. And ladies and gentlemen, when you think about what it takes to grow GDP, there are two elements for GDP growth. One is growth in your population or growth in your workforce plus productivity. The US doesn't have any growth in population and we're not forecasting any real growth in our population we've become hugely reliant now on this growth and productivity. And Shannon's right. The investments weren't made. And most of the time, Shannon, those investments didn't make economic sense for the companies to invest in them because labor was so stupidly cheap. They didn't need to increase productivity. And they did have cheap cash. So they defaulted, I think, with the stock buyback. I kind of didn't blame them, but it, it was sort of disappointing. I mean- that they that they weren't investing more prospectively there. So, final advice for Fred and Ethel, you are so wonderful to be on, and your points today have really been thought provoking uh, for me too. I'm I'm going to stop and think about what you've what you've shared because I think the points of this is a post pandemic paradigm. This is a massive reset that where we were trying to anchor ourselves to 2019, and that isn't really the base case anymore. This is a new world from where we were then. All of those, so very important. So some advice to Fred and Ethel, Uh, this has been brilliant.
3: So my number one um, advice is always to think about um, we go back to time horizon and the need to understand what your liquidity needs to be, and then to understand where you can take some risk and some potential opportunity for growth. So I know you and I see the same charts all the time, six months, you know, post-recession, 12 months post-recession, all all positives in the equity market, right? Yes. But if you know that you're going to need liquidity during this volatile period, you should have that on the sidelines right now. And frankly, cash is paying better. T-bills are paying better. So, you know, just know that, although you might miss out on a potential opportunity that we talk about in terms of being able to invest at these lower valuations, being able to invest in these quality companies that many of them are probably oversold um, or close to oversold in this environment, Uh, just make sure you have your cash on hand because that will help you to avoid some some of this volatility and making poor decisions in the back half of the year because it will, to your point, continue to be choppy um so just you know have those buckets keep that keep that construct in your mind and that will allow you to stay invested much better than if you're trying to invest every single dollar um at these kind of lower levels or on these pullbacks
1: yeah i've always said and it's an excellent point you don't have the money you're going to need in the short term tied up in long-term investments you will not sleep at night if you do and it's funny how often I talk to people who have that as their chief complaint. I need to sell. I'm I've I've got a I've got a house under contract, but I'm waiting for Facebook to go up three more points. And I look at them and go, You out of your mind? Sell it. Sell yeah. it three more points. Yeah.
2: So, as that's
1: it's it that that that's a recipe for disaster. And fabu- more fabulous advice, ladies and gentlemen, from my friend Shannon Sakosha, chief investment officer at SVB private, uh a a great CNBC contributor and great friend. And you now find out why uh, I say she's so brilliant. Shannon, thank you so much for being on The Farcast.
3: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another week here on The Farcast as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. We'll be back next week. Please join us then and share us on your social media. In Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, I'm Michael Farr. Bye.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Farcast. Thanks to Michael's guest, Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Shannon Sikosian. Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and we try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not offered... Employees or, agents of Tower Advisors or Farmer Washington are not necessarily those of High Tower Advisors, Farmer Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, or manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And, if we can be of assistance at Far Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Please share the Farcast with friends and colleagues. Join us next week with scheduled special guest, Tony Frato. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Bar Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced here is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Hightower Advisors LLC, Farm Miller in Washington, or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented as to entity-entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisor for related questions.